Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have been a, a regular follower of the news in, in recent decades, you'll remember well the name Bernie Madoff. Now, Bernie Madoff was a, a Wall Street financier, which originally would probably have not made him very well known to most of us here today, but he became well known to, to almost everybody in America because he was the man who ran what is, as far as we know, the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. He convinced people to invest their money with him in his personal investment company. But during the course of uh, FBI and Security and Exchange Commission investigations and during the course of his trial, investigators found about $65 billion in missing funds from the accounts of about 4,800 investors in his company. Many of those who had invested their money with him, who had wanted to become rich, were now suddenly much poorer after they found out that it was all a scam and that their money had long ago been spent by Bernie and his family members. In the text from Luke's Gospel before us this morning, Jesus has a strong word of warning for those who want to be rich and well-fed and well-thought-of, whose priorities in this life are, are all turned around and mixed up from the priorities that God reveals to us in his word. And Jesus also has a word of comfort for those who are poor, for those who are weeping, who are hungry, and who are mistreated because of Jesus' name. Jesus is not talking to those people about how to invest their money, but about how to invest their lives so that their lives would really count for something and so that they would be able to find real, lasting, eternal happiness. Before Jesus began speaking to the people on that day, we see that Jesus was healing the sick and demon-possessed who came to him. His reputation as a healer and as a teacher had become so widespread that people came from, from miles around to hear him and to be healed by him. The text tells us that they came not only from the, the surrounding areas of Jerusalem and Judea, but even from as far away as Sidon and Tyre in the Gentile areas of Phoenicia to the north of the Jewish lands of Judea and Galilee, a distance of over 100 miles. Some of those people traveled for five or more days, some of them in, in spite of their personal sicknesses or disabilities that they were going to Jesus to be healed from. And when they found Jesus there, they were not disappointed in their expectations. Even those who were plagued by evil spirits were made well. The power of Jesus forced the demons that were possessing those people to submit to him. Now, we certainly ought not to minimize these works of healing. These were truly marvelous things for those people who were on the receiving end of those miracles. So often we speak of miracles as being evidence of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, as he said. We say that those miracles were so often done so that the people around Jesus who heard him teaching and who were traveling with him would believe in him and would believe that he is who he says he is. And it's true that Jesus' miracles did have that function. 
But we should also not lose sight of the fact that Jesus did those miracles also purely out of compassion for the individuals who came to him. His heart always went out to those who were suffering, as our hearts also ought to feel the same compassion and pity. That miracle and that compassion of Jesus was a very individual thing for each of those people who came to him. That person who could barely hobble along by his own strength or or the one who had to be carried by his friends on a stretcher to see Jesus. The woman who for for decades of her life had been plagued by a, a debilitating physical problem. That child who was tormented by evil spirits. Jesus cared about each and every one of them. And he healed them out of his mercy and compassion. But on the other hand, we also ought to keep things in proper perspective. Those healings that Jesus performed as as miraculous and as wonderful and compassionate as they were, were still only temporary and temporal things. They were not meant to last forever, and they did not last forever. All those people whom Jesus healed that day and, and during the other three years of his ministry, they are all now long gone from the face of the earth. Though they regained their physical health that day, they later on died from other diseases or from accidents or from old age. The greatest act of healing that Jesus could do was still to come at Calvary. Their suffering and dying on the cross at the hands of wicked men, Jesus would provide a healing that goes far beyond the the healing of of twisted limbs or of pain-racked bodies. That healing that Jesus provided on the cross would be for all time, for eternity. It would heal the the division that mankind had brought between themselves and God because of their sins and because of our repeated rebellion against God's will. And Jesus, on the third day after his death, would rise from the silence of the grave to bring to mankind a life full of the most incredible riches and blessings from God, a life of, of fullness and of true joy and peace. But first, Jesus had to lift the sights of the people beyond the narrow, constricted view of life that, that characterized their society and that also is characteristic of our society today. They needed to free their thinking so that they could know and, and truly long for what God considered to be true riches. The kingdom of of God, Jesus explains to us, is far more than simply having a full stomach and then simply being in, in good health and then having all the money you could want and all the things that money could buy. In God's kingdom, everyone is rich with the things that really cannot be counted or truly priced because they are priceless. They are beyond the ability of the this world's wealth to purchase. When Jesus spoke, he turned a lot of people's thinking of that time upside down. Jesus spoke blessings and he pronounced woes or curses. But the blessings went to those people of the society of that day who seemed to be in the most need of pity and who seemed to be really lacking the very things for which Jesus was blessing them. And the woes or the curses that Jesus spoke seemed to be spoken to the people who, who at that time 
were viewed as being the most blessed by God, the rich and the wealthy and successful. But Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, because you are receiving your comfort now. Certainly we can imagine that the the rich at that time must have trembled when they heard those words from God. It's no small matter to hear your Savior say to you, Woe to you. That was the same word, the same curse that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees when he asked, How will you escape being condemned to hell? This was the same word that Jesus spoke against those unbelieving towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum when he told them that it would go much easier on the day of judgment for all of the most vile and evil cities and civilizations of the world's history than for the people of those towns on that day of judgment because of their rejection of Jesus, the Savior who was standing and teaching among them. So the haunting thought comes to us, or, or it should come to us. Could Jesus be speaking about me when he speaks of these woes? Yes, it's very possible. It's a question that each one of us has to ask ourselves and to answer in all sincerity and honesty before God. Now, of course, Jesus isn't talking about just having money. We see in the Bible many people who were faithful believers in God and who were richly blessed by God. Abraham and David and a long line of others were, were very wealthy in terms of the possessions and material riches of this world. And by faith in God's promise of a Savior, they are in heaven with God today. But rather, Jesus is talking and when he speaks these words of woe about those who find their ultimate comfort in things that God intended rather only for their temporary convenience. Instead of finding their ultimate comfort in Jesus, they find it in their wealth and in their possessions and health and security in this life. Jesus is talking to those people who put their hope for security in things rather than in God. Because God is the one who holds the future, who holds eternity in his hands. In one of the parables that Jesus told, he tells of a rich farmer who planned to to tear down his barns and to build new ones to, to store all the things that he had earned and amassed for himself. But Jesus calls that rich farmer a fool. Not simply because he had built storehouses that were full of of all the good things of this life, but because he had provided for a future that would not last. He had totally neglected to provide for his eternal spiritual future. And so when God demanded of him his life that very night, he would then stand before God, the righteous judge, poverty-stricken, totally bankrupt of anything of real, eternal, spiritual value because he had forgotten the one thing that was truly important. If you have found yourself anywhere in this picture related to to any of these things that we have discussed or the statements that Jesus has made, go to God in prayer. Ask God to to forgive your sins. Ask God to give you a true sense of, of proper values and priorities in your life. Ask God to help you restructure your priorities so that you put 
first things first, according to God's value system. The mere fact that a person is in church doesn't make that person immune to an inverted sense of values. It happens also in the church. In the book of Revelation, Jesus told John in in the vision that he gave to John to write a letter to the church in Laodicea, saying to them, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those people of Laodicea, the, the church people, had fallen victim to the mistaken idea that if a person is successful and wealthy, that is a sign that God's favor is with them. And so they became complacent and lukewarm in living out their Christian faith. They were, they were lulled into that dull routine of, of their Christian faith life because of a false sense of security. But God said to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Be earnest and repent. God is speaking there of not of physical gold, but of spiritual gold or spiritual riches, treasuring up the forgiveness and the the good news of God's love and mercy. That is what makes us truly spiritually rich. Do you want to become rich? I mean, truly rich. Well, the way to begin that process is by acknowledging before God your spiritual poverty. Because Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Learn to confess together with the wealthy King David, as he did in Psalm 40, I am poor and needy. We come before God with nothing of of any value in his sight. We come, in fact, loaded down with debts that only Jesus could pay for us. And Jesus has paid them. He offers, in place of those debts of our sin, he offers eternal life and the riches of his grace. That's a kind of wealth that you can take with you beyond death and beyond the grave. The richest man in this world who lacks this spiritual treasure is actually abysmally poor in God's eyes. But the poorest man on this earth who has this spiritual treasure is infinitely rich in God's eyes. Now, for most of us here today, this really isn't news to us. You knew this truth before you came here this morning. But the problem among us church people is not usually a lack of knowledge of these truths or these principles. The problem so often for us is living up to these truths. The world and society around us puts so much pressure on us to assimilate its value system, to put a higher value on the things of this life, on on material riches and possessions, than on God and our relationship with God. All of society around us tries to convince us that the true measure of wealth is how much money a person has, how, how big our bank account is. But we need to put our knowledge of true riches into practice in our daily lives. We need to let that knowledge of the true spiritual riches of God's grace be a determining factor in what we do from day to day. It's so easy when we are prospering materially and physically 
to be comfortable and to become satisfied and to become complacent in our spiritual lives. The famous 18th century preacher George Whitfield was very much aware of this spiritual danger when he prayed these words. Lord Jesus, when thou seest me in danger of nestling, then in pity, in tender pity, put a thorn in my nest to prevent me from it. And yes, sometimes in his mercy and love, the Lord does just that. It may seem strange at first to hear Jesus speaking woe to those who are well-fed and who are laughing. Isn't it God's will for people to have enough to eat? Doesn't God want us to be happy in our lives? Yes, he, he might, but really that's missing the point. Jesus is talking about people's misplaced priorities. He's condemning the, the attitude of people's hearts that finds their main satisfaction for life and having a full stomach and, and that finds the greatest joy in life and all the, the carnal and sensual pleasures that this world has to offer. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks a blessing to those who have a hunger for more in life than just material riches or physical pleasures. It's a blessing to realize that there is more to life than a, a freezer full of, of food or a well-stocked pantry or a car for every family member or a good time on a Saturday night. It's a blessing when we realize that life is passing by and when we stop to ask, is that all that there is for my life? That question is, is a blessing because it leads to a hunger for the Savior. Because only the Savior can offer forgiveness. Only he can offer a truly abundant life. Only the Savior can give us a hunger for God's Spirit. A Spirit who brings us fulfillment. A fulfillment that does not diminish, even if all the material riches and the things that God has blessed us with in this life should disappear someday. God assures us that this kind of spiritual hunger is pleasing to him. This is a spirit-given hunger. And God promises that this hunger will be satisfied by his Holy Spirit, blessing us through his word and sacraments. Let's think about another of the persons that we read about in the Bible. 35 years or so in the future from these events that we read about in the gospel reading. In the city of Rome, there was a man who was living in, in great luxury, who enjoyed all the physical comforts and pleasures that the world of that time had to offer. All the riches of the Roman Empire were his, Emperor Nero. Yet his corruption and his cruelty caught up with him, and his life ended in suicide, as he killed himself before his opponents could drag him away and torture him. But there was another man who was at that time living or in actually in prison in another part of the city of Rome. The Apostle Paul lacked all of the physical necessities of life. We read that as he wrote to his student and friend Timothy, he asked Timothy to bring him an old cloak that he had left with another friend in another city so that he could keep warm. Paul knew that he would soon die as a martyr for his faith in Jesus. But 
far from being depressed and dejected at his faith that he knew was coming. He writes that he was exultant and full of joy, knowing the riches that God had given to him. And so he expressed that joy in a hymn of praise and thanks to God when he expressed his confidence in God's faithfulness, saying, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Do you want to be rich? Would you rather be rich like Emperor Nero or like the Apostle Paul? Amen.